I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 11, 1 through 10, even though the text were still in Ephesians. This is the passage that the Apostle Paul was quoting in his message to the Ephesian church. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. So let's read the Word of God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand On the adder's den, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a sign, a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. We've been talking about the book of Ephesians for almost 30 Sundays now, and I'm going to finish in the next few weeks this wonderful epistle. The sweep of the book of Ephesians is pretty grand for such a small book. In the first three chapters, Paul gives us what, what you could be called the indicative of the gospel. In other words, he tells us a grammar. He teaches us how to speak about the gospel. And he says, this is who you are. This is your new identity. And he spends three whole chapters telling us about our new identity and that God has formed from both Jews and Gentiles, in other words, all people in the earth, He has formed one new humanity. One new humanity. And then in the last three chapters, he splits the book almost perfectly in the middle. He talks about a new behavior. In other words, because you have become indicatively who you are, because you're new creatures in Christ, now you are to behave this way. This is your behavior. And I've told you from the start, if you get those backwards, if, who you, if what you do determines who you are, you no longer have Christianity. You have something completely different. You have religion. All the religions of the world, sadly including 
large parts of Christianity, Protestantism, Catholicism, and Eastern Orthodoxy, the three great branches, all of us make our mistakes with respect to this. We want to be defined by what we do. And Paul goes exactly the opposite. In fact, all of the Bible goes the other way. It says you cannot become something by doing things. You have to be. Then you can do. With the right motivation. With the right heart. So he talks about a new behavior starting in chapter 4. And in chapter 6, and a little bit in 5, from 5.21 on, he talks about new relationships. And the relationships that he talks about are marriage relationships, our home relationships, our relationships with our kids, our relationships in the workplace. And finally, he talks about our relationship, and that's where we are now, our relationship with the unseen world. And if you don't believe that there is an unseen world, both angelic and divine, as well as demonic and satanic, then a lot of what you observe and see in the world around us doesn't make much sense. And so we do believe that there is an unseen world. We believe that as real as God is, that is as real as Satan and his demonic forces are. And yet the mistake that many people make in Christianity is we overemphasize the devil. In other words, he's behind every tree and he's underneath every single crevice and corner. He's everywhere and in a lot of ways as powerful as God, only an opposing force. Or we deny his existence at all and we blame everything on people. And Paul doesn't do that. He says it's both, 100%. 100% demonic and satanic and 100% humans as we vibrate with those evil forces, as we find identity in them, as we succumb to their lies and treacheries, the idolatry of our hearts. And that's where Paul has us now. And he tells us that God has equipped His people, given His people armor. Armor that will defend us and by which we can assault the enemy. So the armor is both defensive and offensive. It's for us to employ. And as I told you last week, you're to put this armor on and never take it off. We will never take the armor. We are at war here in this world. We are the church, as long as you live, what theologians call, we are the church militant. We are at war 24-7. There is no vacation. There is no break. And what God has told us is that go to war, I will be with you, and I will defend you. And He's given us His armor, a belt of truth as you just heard from Isaiah, and we'll talk about that in a moment. A breastplate of righteousness, boots or shoes shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, good news, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And just to catch you up, this is not, Paul was not thinking of the Roman soldiers that we typically think. He was drawing from rich imagery that is in the Old Testament. This is what would have been in the forefront of the Apostles' mind. 
Let me quote again Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. We ought not to think, as is sometimes suggested, that this word picture is inspired by Paul's prison experience. Paul was not the kind of prisoner who needed to be guarded by a soldier in full combat gear. While there are clear echoes of the armor of a Roman soldier, the basic elements of the armor of God are drawn from the Old Testament description of the Lord Himself as the divine warrior who is mighty in battle. This imagery that Paul is talking about comes straight out of the rich texture of the Old Testament. And Paul brings it to us and he tells us, you're not being uh, uh, equipped with armor that just simply comes from a Roman soldier as, as many uh, elements might be similar to the ancient armor. He's, he's calling on a much bigger picture. He's saying this is the armor, not of a Roman soldier, but the armor of God Himself, the divine warrior who all people, both pagans and Jews, were familiar with this image of a divine warrior, a righteous God, a king who comes in judgment to slay the wicked and to save the righteous. This is the great image that you see in Scripture. And so Paul is telling people, look at this, look at what God has given you. And so to understand it, we really need to look at Isaiah and look at the Old Testament. In the weeks to come, each week I'll give you a different passage that Paul is actually drawing from. The cognates are there between the modern Roman world that he lived in and even our own world today. You can look at our soul. We have a church full of soldiers. And when they get in their combat gear, you can see all the same cognates that are there, the, 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 uh, uh, the identity of these pieces of armor. But what lies behind it is this tapestry of the divine king, the great warrior king who has come to save his people. So let's look at three things. I'll give you a simple outline. What is truth? What is truth? This is the first piece of armor that we're going to look at. Secondly, why do you need it? Why do you need it? It may seem obvious, but perhaps not quite so obvious. And finally... We're going to look at how Paul understood it. In other words, in order to apply it to your life, and I, I teach this in our theology class, and I'll, I'll tell you again, you have got to understand the context, otherwise you are pouring your meanings into what Scripture says. We don't want to do that. I want to know what Scripture has to say to me. Yes? Not what I have to say to it. Right? Huge difference, yes? But we make that mistake. I want to know what Scripture is saying to me. So we're going to look at the original meaning. What was Paul gleaning from when he talks about truth as a garment, as a, a, a waistband, a belt that surrounds you and holds everything together? What did he mean? What it is, why we need it, and how Paul understood it so that we can apply it. Very quickly, I'm going to give you what it is. I'm going to give you some very simple, very simple categories. There's much more, and perhaps in a few weeks when we get back to our, our Q&A time, we can talk a little bit more about it. But let me give you these very quickly. There is an objective kind of truth. Objective, what we call empirical 
truth. This is truth that you just observe and you see and you know that it's true. And it's, it's, it's all around us. It's part of God's creation. It's uh, science. It's politics. It's philosophy. It's even in nature. There are things that are true. And so when we look around in the world and we see objectively and empirically things that are true, we know that they are true. Now this is very difficult in our modern world because we have something that we're facing today called relativism. Have you all heard of relativism? It's, it's just saturated our, our culture. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And, and so we define what truth is. Right? The problem with that is if I say what's true for me is, is true, then I can come and rob your stuff from your house. Because I believe that it's true that your stuff belongs to me. Right? And even as Ravi Zacharias says, even the most committed relativist looks both ways before he crosses the street. I mean, we know that if you step into traffic, you will die. That is true, objective, empirical truth. And so relativism that says there's no such thing as absolute truth defeats itself in that statement because it is what? An absolutely true statement. You following me? You didn't come to church this early in the morning to get a philosophy lesson, did you? I know it's early. Think about that. When a relativist said there's no such thing as absolute truth, he's just made an absolutely true statement. And he falls on his own sword. And so we, we know that there's objective truth. Secondly, there is biblical truth. There's the truth that is contained in Scripture. In other words, we believe that what the Bible teaches is true. It's reliable. It's accurate. Jesus said in His prayer... In John 17, Father, sanctify them or set them apart or purify them or make them holy, whichever word you wish to choose. Sanctify is, it covers a lot of ground. The word sanctify, set them apart, make them holy, make them pure. Do it by your word. Your word, Jesus said, speaking to the Father, is truth. Your word is truth. The psalmist said, all your words are true. They are trustworthy. And then Jesus, in John 14, comes along and says, not only is there biblical and scriptural truth, but I myself am the truth. I didn't come just to tell you about the truth. I came to be the truth. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. So there's an objective truth and there's an uh, and a, and a biblical truth that, the, that is all around us. John Calvin said, all truth is from God. And consequently, listen to this folks, consequently, if the wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. You see, Calvin understood what truth is. Truth is both objective and biblical. There's plenty of truth in this world over against lies. And then there's a third kind of truth that I think what Paul is doing is he's taking objective and biblical and he's kind of putting it all together and he's saying, now this truth, you are to 
gird yourself with, like with a belt. You're to buckle it on and hold everything in place with both objective and biblical truth. In other words, listen folks, it becomes part of your character. Personal. Honesty. Integrity. Sincerity. We all long for that. We long for that in ourselves. And we long for it in others, in our relationships with people. We want to know that when we're talking to somebody, that what we see is what? What we get. We don't want to, we don't want to be in relationships where people are constantly putting on a mask. And I'll tell you something, that is the most disappointing part, I think, of Christianity. Is what? What, what is the name for it? Two faces. What? Hypocrisy. It's wearing a mask. It's having two faces. And it's so frustrating that when you talk to people, you're not really seeing who they are. And there's reasons for that. We'll talk about it in a moment. Okay, objective, biblical, and your character. Listen, God looks for truth in His people. He wants that in you. He wants that to be part of what you are and who you are. Psalm 51 you, the psalmist speaking to God, you delight in truth, in the inward uh, being. Uh, uh, Paul insists that we are truth. He says, having put away falsehood, speak the truth to one another. Paul insisted on it in chapter 4 and in other places. Chapter 4 of Ephesians. And think of this, folks. A lie, a lie is what introduced sin and chaos into this world. The serpent came to Adam and Eve, and, and in Hebrew, it's a hiss. Yes! Has God said. It's a hiss. You, when you say it in Hebrew, it's a hiss. Has God really said this? You see, a lie introduced sin and chaos. And our original parents believed the lie and embraced the lie. And so consequently, lying has become a part of the character, the very nature of human beings. We have to fight to push it off. So it's to be part of our character. Jesus said to the Pharisees, these were very religious, very honest, very upright men. He said to them, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks, listen, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and He is the Father of lies. And Jesus said, He's your Father to the Pharisees. So being a religious person does not automatically make you honest, does it? Absolutely not. In fact, that's what I'm telling you. Those of us who call ourselves Christian, we have to guard against this. We have to put truth on. We have to wear it like a garment. We have to buckle it around our waist and say, I'm going to be honest and truthful and have integrity and sincerity. Come what may, let the chips fall where they may. Now that does not mean that you're to speak your mind and tell everybody you know that come to you and say, like this morning, I, I didn't put a tie on. And because it's hot. 
And Marty V said, you're not going to church without a tie. That was a true statement. <laughs> so, we're not just to say everything that comes into our mind. Oh, you know, that's the worst thing. You know, you're the ugliest person I've ever seen in the world. You know, sometimes truth means you be quiet. More often than not, I would say. So you don't just speak your mind. But what you are is honest. You have integrity. There's a solidity to you that truth gives us. And brings to us. And it's part of the armor. It's part of the new character that God has given to His people. Listen, Jesus reversed the lie of Satan. He is the bringer of truth. When they brought Jesus before Pilate, Pilate mocked Him. Pilate said to Him, So, you're a king? So you're a king? Listen to Jesus' answer. For this purpose, I was born. And I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate's answer to him was a question. What is truth? From mockery to sincere question. What is it? Can you tell me? So he's the bringer of truth, but Jesus is also the being who is truth. You see, standing, you can get very close to Jesus. You can be face to face with him like Pilate was and still not encounter the truth. Because to have the bringer of truth, you have to say he is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. And more than that, he is my life. Once that happens, the DNA of your inner man, the inner soul of the human being is rearranged, what we call the new birth. You're born anew, and truth replaces lies. And you put on truth. Truth, folks, is an attribute of God Himself. He always speaks the truth. He never lies. And it becomes and is an attribute of His people. And so we are to wear the truth like a garment. What it is, I gave it to you. Why do you need it? Why do you need it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we read this last week. Let me read it again. Paul explains a little further to the Corinthians about this warfare that we are involved in with the unseen world. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, of, but have divine power, now listen to what he says, to destroy strongholds, arguments, every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God, and to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. So Paul is saying that the truth is going to defend you and be armor for you in the assaults against strongholds, lofty opinions, and arguments. In other words, the battle for truth, folks, often is internal. It's happening inside of us. There are assaults from the outside, yes, to be sure. But often it's how we respond. Truth is an armor. From the outside... 
Truth has to stand up against what? Slander. Accusations. Temptations. In other words, Satan is great at showing you the bait and not what? The hook. He shows you the bait, but no hook. It looks great, smells good, tastes great. Look at it. Isn't it nice? And she said, sure, you know, that really does look good. There is a battle that goes on in our minds. From the outside, these temptations, these accusations, these doubts, these despairs that come into our lives and assault our mind. And everyone has them from the outside. The inside, though, is also good. There's a battle going on in the inside, in our thought life, our heart, our core beliefs. There's things like this. Let's listen to this. There's self-deception. If you want to see a pathetic, pathetic Christian, find a Christian who is caught up in self-deception. In other words... Get up in the morning and go look in the mirror. And what you will see in the mirror is someone who is self-deceived. Yes? See how quiet it got? There you are. Proof. We get up and every morning and we start to, to lie. We start telling ourselves lies. And some of that we have to do just to survive, unfortunately. But listen, self-deception does nothing. It, it takes you two places. Self-deception will take you to self-love and you think I'm better than I am. Or it'll take you to self-loathing. I'm worse than I am. Yes? We'll think, you know what, I'm not so bad. I mean, compared to, uh, oh, compared to Jeff, I'm way, I'm way better than Jeff. But then I have to look over at, at Ed Brodka. And I say, oh gosh, so the next to Ed, I don't even rank. You know, man. I'm embarrassing these guys because neither one of them would, would believe that, right? About themselves. But we do that. We, we start measuring ourselves against others. I'm better than him. I'm not as good. Oh, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. We either self-love or self-hate. And, and we're all along that continuum. And the gospel comes along and says, throw away that continuum and climb up into my lap. My beloved children, come to me. I'll tell you what love is. I'll show you what love is. I'll create it in you. Why? Because while you were dead in your sins and trespasses, Christ commended His love towards you. And this, He died for you. Now, you define love and self-worth by that. You get off the continuum of self-esteem and self-loathing. You get away from it altogether and you climb up into the lap of your Heavenly Father and you see pure love and you find yourself and your identity in that. Yes? Can you say amen to that? Yes! In the inside, there's self-deception. This is the way to fight it. There's self-protection. How many of us, I don't know how. Folks, this is an onslaught daily in the lives of human beings. And sadly in Christians as well. There's self-protection. There's self-deception, but there's self-protection. And that's caused by fear. We are afraid. We're afraid to open our lives up to anybody. Because why? Because you've been hurt. 
And it's legitimate. I know. People are hurt. We all have experienced hurts and wounds. But the only way you're ever going to understand your own personal pain, your own woundedness, is not to keep looking at your woundedness. How will your woundedness and your brokenness and your fear and your self-protection, how is it ever healed? Not by trying harder, not by just, you know, getting a little bit stronger. No, it's by looking to the one person who was perfect and was wearing the armor perfectly and willingly exposed himself to the assaults of death and hell and the grave to rescue you so that you could live the rest of your life not afraid. Yes, not needing to self-protect. So that you could be an honest and integral person who is not afraid of the the slings and arrows of people throwing a slander your way. Let them say, let them say whatever they want. Let goods and kindred go, Martin Luther said. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's what? Truth. His Word abideth still. Do you see it? We don't have to self-protect. We don't have to self-deceive. The third one, self-promotion. This is, you know, I've got to get ahead. I've got to get people to like me. I desperately need you to like me. I mean it. Pastors desperately, the whole reason, we, you all think we went into the ministry because we were called by God? We go into the ministry because we need adoration and worship and love. We need it. And unfortunately, I have to admit it. I hate that. But we love approval. And so do you. We all love it. We want to know people like us and think highly of us and on and on it goes. Self-promotion. It causes us to do all kinds of crazy things. So truth is an armor. You need it because it will, it will set, your, set you straight. It will tell you, you know what, you're not that great. In fact, if the curtain was drawn all the way back, what would you do? You'd scream in horror if you really saw everything. But you'd also see something else if the curtain was drawn all the way back, wouldn't you? You would see how much you're loved. So the battle defends us inside and outside. The battle is in our heart. How do you you take this all in? And I think the way you do this is the way Paul did it. Paul went to the Old Testament. And this part of the Old Testament, so we're in this part of the imagery. This is the third part. The imagery that Paul is drawing from. He goes straight to chapter 11 of Isaiah. Now, Do you all remember what's in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Isaiah? It's Isaiah's first exploration and explanation into the idea that God is going to someday raise up a great and majestic king. A divine warrior unlike David, unlike Solomon, unlike Rehoboam, unlike Hezekiah, unlike Manasseh, 
unlike the hundreds of kings of Israel and Judah who all failed. Even as good as David, uh, God said of David, this is a man after my own heart. He's the apple of my eye. Even David failed. But Isaiah starts to construct this beautiful picture of a servant king, a warrior king, who would come into the earth, would, would be arrayed with God's army, uh, armor, would come bringing God's host from heaven, and would wage divine war on behalf of God's people. Chapter 7, a virgin shall, be, uh, shall bear a child, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And here in chapter 11, he says, There shall come forth a shoot, a branch from the stump of Jesse, the Spirit of the Lord. You see, he's describing a great king, a king that will not fail. And he says, This king will wear righteousness like a belt. Righteousness, zedek in Hebrew. It's a rich, full-orbed, Word, it means that he will be just, that he will judge with equity, in other words, levelness and straightness, and that faithfulness, this word for faithfulness is a beautiful word, it's the word emunah, and what it means is that he will be a truth speaker, he will have integrity and sincerity unlike the kings that you've been used to. Aren't you tired of politicians lying? I don't care what political party, they all lie. Yes? Every one of them lies. It's disgusting. And we're going to have to vote for one of them. And I hope you do. Go vote for your own personal liar. And you know what? That... I'm not pointing fingers. They're like me. If I was a politician, I'd be lying. Yes? We all lie. But here's a description of one who will come who will not lie. Who will be girded or buckled up with a belt of truth and righteousness and equity. A great king. And that's his armor. That's his strength. His power. To come and wage war on your behalf. Not merely with swords and arrows and bombs and killing and destruction. No, He's going to come gentle and meek with the truth. Truth that He promises will set you free from the bondage of sin and darkness. It's amazing. The New Testament applies all that beautiful imagery of the righteousness being girded with the truth, the belt of righteousness, the belt of truth, the belt of equity, as Isaiah describes it, applies it all to Jesus Christ our King, the divine warrior. And when He was assailed with accusations, He did not open His mouth. You never find Jesus defending Himself. He is always on the attack. You never find Jesus self-protecting. You don't find Him self-deceiving. When He's in the wilderness, being assaulted directly by Satan, none of you have been affected. Satan has never bothered with anybody in this room. Right? No. Whoever said that is wrong. Satan has much bigger fish to fry. They're all in Washington, D.C. 
Now, the devil doesn't bother with you. He has an army of lesser minions that can take up their... They can, they can occupy you for the rest of your life. Yes? But we're so arrogant, we think, oh, Satan is assaulting me. You know, he doesn't have to bother with you and me. But Jesus was assaulted by Satan himself. And all his power came to bear. And this wonderful man, this great divine warrior, this great king came and fought on your behalf for you and as you. And he answered with God's word every time. Jesus not only answered with the truth, Jesus embodied the truth. How did he do that? Because sickness and disease and corrupt politics and blindness, and leprosy, and lameness, and oppression, and poverty are all the work of Satan. And Jesus came to destroy the work of Satan. And so you wonder, why was He going around healing people and doing all these wonderful miracles? Was He just trying to astonish the crowds? And oh my goodness, look at this. No, that, w- that was not what He was doing. It was, an, it, was a, it was a byproduct of what He was doing. What he was doing was waging war against all. Think of this poor, sad, broken world. He was setting to rights what was wrong in this world. He was bringing truth to the lie. Do you see it? Bringing truth. Blessed, Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He was reversing the lie. We think blessed are the strong. Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the movie stars with lots of money. Blessed are the sports stars with lots. Blessed are the countries like the United States that have lots of power. We should be thanking God we have power. Yes? Not glorying in it. Power is held by God Himself. And everyone is to pay allegiance to this great King who did come in power and yet laid His power down in truth so that we could live in freedom. Let me close with this. Paul says, take this armor up. Put it on. In order to do that, you're going to have to take on the truth Himself. He has to become the fabric, the garment that you wear that covers all the lies. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily clings to us. And let us run with endurance, with patience, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for, listen, the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such lies, hostility, the writer says, against Himself. Do this, And this writer of Hebrews says, you will not grow faint-hearted or weary. Look to Christ. Clothe yourself with the garment of truth 
objectively and biblically. Clothe yourself with it. Don't self-protect. Don't uh, self-promote. But rather, look to the One who in weakness became strong to save you and I. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus Christ. Help us to look to Him in all things. Not to glory in our strength and our prowess. Those things are lies. They are here today and gone tomorrow. Let us not rejoice, Father, in our riches or wealth or security. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Help us to measure our true life, which is a vapor like a blade of grass that springs up in the morning and by the evening is gone. That's the truth. But it's also truth that You have sent Your Son into this broken world to gather up those blades of grass and give them life. Life eternal. So that as we face our mortality, we can look to the true immortality of Jesus Christ our King. The resurrection, the life, and the light of the world to come. Help us to find our identity, Father, I pray in Him. As we enter this long and hot summer, I pray that You'll fill us with a desire in our hearts to be people of truth and integrity. Change us, O Lord. Help us and strengthen us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.